many educators are well aware of these days, girls rule in school. Typically, when you make out an honor roll list, you're going to have more girls than boys making straight A's. And in a lot of cases, boys are getting more in trouble than girls. So what is going on to the point where girls are exceeding school and boys are struggling? Now, this is not with every girl and every boy, but millions of boys are, who are performing poorly in reading and writing. They're being diagnosed with learning disabilities in record numbers. Uh, many of them, compared to girls, are not graduating out of high school. Many opting out of college, making college campuses female-dominated. So what's going on? Hey, we're going to be talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Peg Tire and her new book, The Trouble with Boys. She's a mother of two sons, and she has dug deep into the research about how boys learn and came to some eye-opening conclusions about why our schools may be failing them. Peg, you're not a public school teacher. I'm kind of curious as to the origins of the book. What led you to write a book about boys and the education in the school system? Well, I covered education for Newsweek for seven years, and in that time I spent a lot of time in classrooms. And, you know, I wasn't really looking at the issues of boys in those classrooms. I was actually looking for the issues that affect girls. I was uh, more, I don't know, I don't like to think I have biases, but I guess I grew up on the literature of reviving Ophelia and how schools shortchanged girls, those documents that suggested that girls were the ones who were struggling. So I was focused on girls, and it wasn't until I was in schools for a couple of years that I started to notice that the kids who are lagging behind are disproportionately male. What were some of the particulars that you found in your observations? I mean, what's going on with boys in schools? Well, how many classrooms have I been in where the teacher is teaching her heart out and the girls are sitting in the front with their hands straight up in the air going, ooh, ooh, call on me, and the boys are sitting in the back, slumped in the back, looking like pieces of stone, pretending they're not there, doing that like, I'm not paying attention, so please don't call on me thing that kids do in the very back of the classroom. <laughs> and I couldn't help but notice that in class after class, especially in English and history classes, those kids in the back of the room were largely boys. I was talking to a headmaster at, at a, a very elite private school in Manhattan who mentioned to me that the kids in his lowest quartile, the ones who went there and stayed there, were largely, or all but one, were boys. I have two sons, and I knew from seeing them in school and talking to other parents that the kids who were really struggling seemed disproportionately to be boys. So I went to the data to look and see, well, what does the data tell us? And the numbers are really quite startling. I mean, on National Honor Society is 67% female. Our college campuses now are largely 60% female. 2.5 million more girls than boys in college. And that's a product of the pipeline that carries kids from preschool to freshman year. That pipeline is leaking boys. I think there's a few places in that pipeline where you can demonstrate from the data where boys fall out. I think it starts very, very early that boys in the very early grades get are subject to a lot of negative attention. Not every boy, but many boys. And I think that they start to disengage. I agree. And by almost by the time they get to middle school and high school, they're almost, as some would say, lost because of certain experiences in the elementary realms. But even in your book, it even goes earlier than that, jump-starting childhood. Let's talk about what's going on uh, with preschool and, and kindergarten. Well, I think that uh, there's been a big push down in academics. I think that we have this idea now that as parents and as teachers that 
I think actually it's coming more from parents in the communities and teachers more reflected in the classrooms, the values of that community. But I think that we have this idea that kids are on the bus or off the bus to school success by age four. You know, my book has a kind of has a striking title, which is The Trouble with Boys, What Parents and Educators Must Do. The truth is, and it sounds like I have a, you know, a, a big sh- finger to shake at parents and teachers, but actually the more time I spent talking to both of them, the more compassionately I felt about them. I mean, parents pressure their kids for early academics and bring their kids to early academics because they want to do what's best for them. They want to do what they think is best for them. And I think that's a result of some interesting messages that we were handed by authorities in the 90s, doctors and neuroscientists and even education people right up to the White House. They had conferences on learning in the brain, which all suggested that children could learn earlier than we thought. And that's very true. The problem is that message morphed into this idea that we need to do worksheets earlier, that the kind of learning you do in fourth grade should be adapted to four-year-olds, and that's not true. Four-year-olds learn in a different way. They need to learn in a different way, not sitting at a desk with worksheets, but more through play-based learning. That's actually how very young children learn, but we have this idea that we need to get them school-ready and get them, you know, sitting in chairs and holding pencils properly, and we need to get them reading in kindergarten, and it's a lot for a lot of kids, and the kids who tend to fall out at that point are boys, who lag a little developmentally behind girls. Why is it boys that seem to be struggling more so than girls in the early grades, especially? There are girls who struggle, and, you know, let me just say that when we talk about boys and girls, like we're talking about, you know, we're talking about half the population. So everywhere you look, there's a thin margin of high-performing boys. But what you do see broadly across the population is that boys are a little slower developmentally. And I talked to a scientist who looks at cross-sections of the adolescent brain, and what she found is that, in, in fact, it's true, like the brain development is slower in boys, and when you look at brain development and particularly the the waxy coating that covers the neuron endings that makes your brain work more efficiently, girls have all the stuff they need by about 16, and boys don't have it all up in the skull and the cranium until they're about 25. Interesting. So there's a big lag, and teachers have known this and held back their boys. They redshirted their boys for many, many years. It's a tried-and-true tradition among teachers. But, you know, teachers, they'll often say, well, he's a young five. Because, you know, his birthday falls at a time when actually it makes him four months younger than the bulk of the class. And four months when you're four years old is a lot. It makes a big difference, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I want to go back to what you said earlier about not pointing fingers. And that's one of the things I appreciate about your book. You know, it wasn't a teacher bashing book. I'm so impressed by teachers being in classrooms. I see what they do. And I have met very, very few teachers who aren't really sensitive to this issue of boys in school and the way boys are falling behind. I think teachers are going to be key in solving it. So I'm not teacher bashing in any way. And one of the things you actually were sympathetically demands that are placed on teachers and in schools and how this pressure is is getting to to boys to where schools, especially here in Georgia, not a lot of the new ones aren't even building playgrounds and and we're getting rid of recess and we're limiting recess to maybe 20 minutes a day or if they're lucky and sometimes not even at all. How does uh, taking away recess so we can make sure no child is left behind is actually leaving boys behind? Well, I think that's a really misguided strategy. And if you look at the, the to reduce recess 
But it wasn't, I came to that conclusion only after I really researched it. Because I have to tell you, as a, as a former girl, like recess was not that big a deal to me. Like it seemed like, you know, in retrospect, it seemed like a lot of noise and a kickball. And so when I looked at the reduction of recess, which is very, very, you know, very dramatic change in how we educate children. It used to be there was free time built into the day. And early education routinely had two recesses a day. And children straight up through middle school got recess and well into middle school. We also had a lot more PE and a lot more opportunity for physical movement. So that's changed a lot in, in the class, right, in class day. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I asked myself, why would that disproportionately affect boys? Why would it matter? So I went to the people who do the research on movement and human development and gender. And what I found, I found this wonderful scientist in Canada. He actually measures how much children move. It was his hypothesis that boys move around more than girls. But what he did is he put an actimeter on children and he sent them out to play. And what he found is that, yes, you're not surprised to know boys move around more than girls. But there's a big overlap. So when I looked at his research, I thought, well, that wouldn't necessarily, then reducing recess wouldn't necessarily be have a big effect on boys. But then I looked a little deeper in his, into his research, and what you see is that the outliers, the ones who move around the most, are invariably boys. When you reduce recess, you marginalize a group of children who are disproportionately boys. And anyone can tell you that you just go to a playground and, and generally a lot of what you see is a lot of girls kind of walk around talking and, and they're active and, and playing, but also the boys are just all over the place. But we're kind of taking that away. And it's one of the things you mentioned in your book, it's not free time anymore out in the playground where they can build their other skills. It's teacher-led recess activities. Teacher-led recess. Yeah. Whose idea was that? I mean, teachers can't like that. And kids... Kids can't like that. And there are skills that are being lost there. Now, I'm, I have to be really careful. You know, I think that girls need a lot of physical activity. Yes. I personally, you yes. know, need a lot of physical activity. And in order to learn, I need to mix up my day with moving around. And I know since Title IX, we've, we've become a lot more comfortable with the idea that girls are pretty darn competitive. And they're pretty, they're pretty aggressive on the field hockey court. You know, like, and I welcome all that. But when you talk about little kids, the teachers know this. If you keep kids inside, okay, who starts to act up? When you have circle time and it goes on too long, who starts to act up? It's not the girls. It's the boys. And why is that? Because it's their natural development. But we work against that. We see them as they're doing something wrong, right? They're, being, they're not being compliant. They're not going along with the flow of the classroom. So their natural desire to move then becomes a hazard in the classroom. And I so saw that when I taught fourth grade for so many years. School would start from 7.30 and lunch really wouldn't be until 11 o'clock. So that's a long stretch for a kid to be in a classroom. And we were in a trailer classroom. So one of the things I would do was just say, okay, we're going to have a morning run when you kind of caught, you know, that they were getting a little bit more fidgety. So they would just five minutes, that was all it took me. They would just line up in a race and run back and forth across the field and have this big race and get all their energy out. And it was amazing the difference as far as they said they felt better, they were able to concentrate better, and uh, behavior problems were uh, much less. There's so many teachers who are coming up with plans like that, who are coming up with ideas like that. They don't cost anything. <sighs> they don't require a big rearrangement. Okay, for teachers to do that, you need to have leadership that will be tolerant of that. Right? Yes. Because if your principal comes by and says, hey, why are the kids 
running around the field when they should be on task for covering the state standards, and that's a black mark against you, teacher, you, Miss Jones or Mr. Smith, right? Then teachers don't feel empowered to try what they know is right, I right? Can... What they know is useful. Absolutely. And we're talking to Peg Tiger, author of the book, The Trouble with Boys, a surprising report card on our sons, their schools, and what parents and educators must do. So, Peg, we've been talking about some of the struggles boys are having in schools, and you know, sometimes a simple little recess break can do wonders, but a lot of times educators are saying it's ADHD, and the last couple of years we've had this huge ADHD epidemic, and most of them are boys that seem to be prescribed on this medication. What's going on? Well, what you see is a, a, a massive, as you say, a massive rise in the number of kids, and particularly boys, who are identified as having ADHD. Now, it really worries me because uh, I believe that ADHD exists. I believe that some kids have it, and medicine is a godsend for them. But let's look at the numbers. The American Medical Association says 3 to 5% of kids have, of people have ADHD, of Americans have ADHD. And when you look at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, they say that 14% of boys under the age of 15 are identified as having it. So how does that work? How does it work that 3 to 5% have it, but 14% of schoolboys have it? So then you look at the way in which ADHD is diagnosed, and I say diagnosed very loosely. I think it's easier to fix the boy than it is to fix the school. But also I think parents are looking for that solution in conferences I've been a part of to where they're like, you know, if the child is misbehaving or, or just not getting work done or something like that, they'll just automatically say, well, does he have ADHD? Maybe I should go get us some medicine. Right. Well, the drug companies have been very, very effective in marketing ADHD to parents. In Parenting Magazine, you can open it up and there's a little picture of a boy with a baseball glove and he's saying, got my homework done, Dad. Do you want to play ball? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what are we talking about there? We're talking about parents being frustrated with their son's school failure and feeling that it interferes with their family life. It's a very eloquent ad. It's a strong driver for parents to say, okay, maybe there's something wrong. And, you know, parents are so willing to take it on. They always say things like, what did I do wrong? Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and let me just say how much, and you and I both know, it's so much easier to get a parent to take their kid to the doctor than it is to get a school district to change their scheduling to put recess in for all second graders, to restore recess. It takes a lot of scheming and a lot of replanning and a lot of negotiation. so much easier to make the problem that one particular family or one particular boy. Another thing that takes blame for a lot of boys these days and not doing well in schools, and you mentioned it in your book, is the subject of video games. What's a parent to do with video games? <laughs> this, is a, this is a hard topic for me because I have to say, <laughs> you know, I think I have no biases, but I do. I hate video games and hate that my sons play them as much as they do. I also worry that it's affecting my son's learning, that it's affecting his attention span. And I think that's true. I think that teachers also say that the more kids play video games, the harder it is to keep their attention. Here's the reason for that. Teachers are boring compared to video games. If you play them, like, they're pretty exciting, and they are a pretty personalized way of learning. You're learning, and every time you master a skill, the whole game changes. You get a different level of proficiency. You, you get to go to a new, you know, have more cash and prizes. You get more treats in the game, right? So compared to that, chalk and talk, you know, a teacher standing up in front of a classroom going, wah, 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 <laughs> it's boring, right? 
what I see, though, is I see that smarter people than me have clicked onto the fact that video games are this very concentrated, personalized way of teaching. And so they're starting to use video gaming in classrooms. And I see this coming very rapidly into our schools. Now, will we be teaching death of a salesman with a video game? I doubt it. But, you know, there are some things that require skills and drills. And I think those things will soon be taught through uh, in a gaming mechanism. And technology can be very helpful in that. I know my boys love going to the computer lab, and we just don't play games. We, we go to a lot of interactive sites that really hold their attention and really enhance the learning. So I want to encourage teachers to make use of technology if your school that have the resources for that. Kids, are, especially boys, are really into video games and the computer and such like that. So it's no wonder that boys in literacy these days, you know, reading a book, actually sometimes don't go hand in hand. And unfortunately, though, the schools don't always have the best selection of reading material for boys. Put a boy in Barnes & Noble, he's going to find something he really enjoys. But sometimes a book or a story in a reading book at a school, it's not going to hold their attention. I'm really surprised by the kinds of school libraries that teachers supply their children. I feel for teachers because, you know, we all want to probably teach what we like. Mm-hmm. And, and we also teach what we know. But the problem is, if you're a female teacher, as most early education teachers are, the problem is is that boys tend to like different kind of books at that age that girls don't necessarily like. So boys tend to like books about science, biographies, nonfiction, books about facts, like uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, they love those, yeah. Ripley's Which I think it or no not. Girl, and what happens is they like books like Captain Underpants that are like irreverent oh, yes. humor, they The love. Gas We Pass. Those, those books all have like an extraordinary fascination for boys. But teachers see them as a little bit outside the school curriculum. They say, well, that's not really a school book. Why don't you put that away until in your backpack till after school? What they communicate to boys in that situation is that what you like is not appropriate for school. And when boys are polled about their reading habits at age 9 and 10, they say reading is girly. And it seems like schools are really coming down on, on boys and keeping a tighter grip on them. I mean, you can't even play touch football. Recess, There's a like, lot of sensitivity yeah. about aggression in school. And, you know, I know how important classroom management is. I mean, I appreciate that you can't teach unless everyone feels safe and comfortable. But I think we're very, very rigid now. Partly because of No Child Left Behind, partly because our communities demand that we cover such an extensive amount of material that we feel that we have to keep a lid on the kids, and particularly the boys. And I think it's very hard. And good teaching looks comes in all different kinds of envelopes. What you really need is empathetic, tolerant teachers who are supported in a way so they can come up with innovative solutions to reach all kids. What I would call for is a little more tolerance in the classroom, a little more discussion of what boys are really like, and a little more education, especially for young teachers who may not necessarily have had their own children or have brothers who don't really get that a lot of what little boys are doing is just how they are. It's not something that they're trying to do to the classroom or do to the teacher. It's just that's their nature. This conversation has to begin at the principal's office and at a district level so that teachers feel empowered to come up with solutions because the best programs are ones that teachers suggested. And they suggested them because they felt like they could, that they could be innovative. And that's a result of good leadership, strong leadership in the school. 
Absolutely. And, and Peg, all the classrooms that you sat in, you must have saw a lot of you know, male or female teachers doing things that were right or helpful to the boys in their classroom. Uh, any strategies or techniques that you can uh, recall to share to our teachers that sure that like there there was some people who uh, for example simple one okay young teacher Illinois working on the gender gap and she started to allow a little more noise in her classroom because she didn't want to spend so much time trying to keep a lid on kids she decided that it would be okay for it to be a little noisier she didn't love it at first but she saw that it really helped because she wasn't focusing so much negative attention on the noisy kids who tended to be boys. I saw a math teacher use a number line on the floor, like a hopscotch, so the kids would jump like little rabbits down the line as to learn how to count and learn how to add. And it was neat. It was very, very physical. And the kids were exhilarated from the physical activity, but they were also learning. I've seen teachers use little pads, they're little like whoopee cushions that the fidgety boys can sit on. It just helps them sit up straight. I've seen teachers who have reduced circle time because boys talk about, little boys talk about circle time like they're facing the guillotine. There's too much sitting down. I've seen teachers who restore, especially in, in the early years, restore areas of the classroom for physical play and make-believe. So that physical movement becomes part of the classroom day. I've seen teachers who give kids a yellow pass, and so when they start to really lose focus, really lose focus, they get the yellow pass to run around the school and come back. Now, they lose seven minutes of instructional time, eight minutes, maybe ten minutes of instructional time. But what they learn to do is they learn to ask for the pass very quietly, run around, come back, enter the classroom very quietly, and then they're attentive. And those, of course, the runners are usually boys. Oh, yes. So there's lots of really wonderful solutions out there. There's not going to be one solution that fits every school, but if you're a good teacher, you have ideas about how to make this work. You just need to begin to have the conversation about how to make it okay about putting those ideas into action. You know, you need to sort of get your principal on board. My hope for this book is that it will give teachers a way to have this conversation, not about the seesaw, like girls are up, boys are down, boys are up, girls are down. We all want our girls to do well. Sure. I would love to see their you know, high performance continue. But we need to find a way to have a conversation about boys in a very neutral, data-driven way so that we can really make sure all kids are learning. Parents and educators are my two, two, people, two groups of people I was really thinking about when I, when I wrote the book because the problem is with parents, they all think it's something they're doing wrong. And you need to see that it's not just your son. There's a big national problem out there and that your son might be part of it. And hopefully this book will be a way so parents can bring it to a teacher and say, let's form a constructive coalition around this particular issue. Let's have a conversation that will be not about blame, but about making school good for all kids. Absolutely. Peg, if people want more information about you, is there a website they can go to yeah, find out more? Yeah, they can certainly go to my website. It's Peg Tire. It's P-E-G-T-Y-R-E dot com. Author of the book, The Trouble with Boys, Mrs. Peg Tyre. Definitely appreciate her time and talking with us. Definitely encourage you to pick up the book. There's so much more to it. And teachers, it will force you to look into your own teaching style and your classroom and, and think, well, yeah, boys and girls do learn differently. They act differently. And 
what am I doing to compensate the differences there in the classroom? Take care.